friends and colleagues, and welcome to Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. Also here today is... This is Michelle Tarvox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. This is a bonus episode. This is from Dr. John Ho's website, KikoXP, K-I-K-O-X-P.com. K-I-K-O stands for Knowledge In, Knowledge Out. This is a website that Dr. Ho started as sort of a social media educational forum for doctors to share their expertise, specifically dermatopathologists, since he's a dermatopathologist, but expanding. And every Thursday evening, they have a shared experience where you can go in if you're a dermatopathologist or dermatology resident or just somebody interested in dermatopathology to talk about some unknowns. It is such a fun thing to do. Um, We were on it recently with our residents and it's case presentation. It's clinical pathologic correlation. It's kind of like a game show. It's got everything. So we thought we'd release that episode of us being there joining Dr. Ho as a bonus episode here. By the way, Dr. Ho was also on our podcast on episode 62. So if you want to hear him talk about how he sees the future of dermatologic education, you can check that out. And otherwise, here's us talking with Dr. Ho. And you can also find the video on the Kiko website, kikoxp.com. Welcome to a special edition of the Derm Path Unknowns. Usually we do it at a Kahoot, so we call it a, the Derm Path Kahoot, but we don't always use a Kahoot. Um, but uh, today we have two very, very, we have three very, very special guests today, right? So we, we have our regular fellow, Dr. Colleen Beatty, um, and we also have Dr. Luke Johnson from the University of Utah and Dr. Michelle Tarbox from uh, Texas Tech University. <clears throat> and uh, of course, uh, Luke and Michelle are the fantastic co hosts of the widely consumed Dermosphere <laughs> podcast. <clears throat> and uh, I, I, I just found out about it this year and kind of just reconnected with Luke this year. He, he, he rotated through Dermpath quite a long time ago when I was still fairly green, <clears throat> if I recall correctly. And uh, we had an especially good time with Luke around the scope, chit-chatting about Dungeons and Dragons and gaming and and maybe a little Derm Path too. And I always wondered what happened to Luke. And it turns out he went to Texas Tech and uh, went to Utah. Um, I know Aaron Seacrest out there too. He came through the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, really a, a great guy. Uh, missed that guy. Um, but uh, welcome Michelle and welcome Luke. And thank you for taking part in uh, our Durham Path Unknowns this week. Thank you for having us. We're so excited to be here. Yes, and of course, you were also on our podcast. And if anybody wants to check that out, it was episode 62. Episode 62. I can't tell you, like I said, how many um, former residents and attendings came by and said, uh, um, you know, we heard you on, on, on the Dermosphere podcast, and, and it's like I didn't have to go out and advertise it at all. Everybody just uh, was able to hear it. So uh, thank you for having me on. <laughs> so we have 10 cases today. These are great cases. 
if I don't say so myself. Actually, I can't <laughs> even take credit for all these cases. Uh, several of these cases came from Georgetown University MedStar Health uh, from Michael Cardis. He uh, is the, the director of DermPath out there. And um, two of their peds, derm, pediatric dermatologists, uh, some fantastic cases. Uh, so they do a, a yearly peds uh, CPC, and uh, I stole three of their cases because they were so good. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's 10 cases. There's clinical images on each of the cases, and there's a uh, derm path on each of these cases. And um, I thought it would be really great to have experts like you guys uh, talk about these cases somewhat cold um, and kind of work through how you approach the case, you know, if they had walked kind of through your clinic. And, um, you know, I, I do this every week, but uh, people get tired of hearing my approach and it's good to hear everybody else's approach too. Uh, so uh, if that's okay with you guys, uh, maybe that's the way that we'll handle it today is uh, kind of have you uh, walk through the findings or pimp the residents, um, you know, a a as you wish, and then uh, go through the clinical and go through the path. Um, and Dr. Beatty will man the chat for us so that uh, we don't have to keep looking at the chat box uh, and then pipe in whenever whenever she, see, she, she sees a real good question come out from the audience. And uh, how's that plan sound? That sounds great. Okay. Do we want to mention that we have residents from both of our home institutions represented? Yeah, so how many are represented there today? Ooh, um, right now in person we have four people and we have I think some people on the chat virtually as well. Oh, okay, great. And awesome. I feel like we've got at least one. Two. Shout out to Dr. Mujahid. There might be somebody else in there that I'm just not seeing on the Zoom. And uh, like I said, I don't know how many people, I, don't, I can't, tr I've never done the Twitch thing before, so I don't know how many uh, are actually watching uh, And Dr. Twitch. Topham. Awesome. Yep, they're saying in the chat too from Utah. Represent. Yep. I like that. I'm pretty impressed by that. You know, our sign for the University of Utah is not too different than like the guns up from Texas Tech. Uh -huh. So it only makes sense that we're united. Break it apart. Yeah. That's also the U. You know, of U uh, you. Miami. You oh, Miami. Yeah, they call themselves the U, but how many U's <laughs> are in the University of Miami? Exactly. <laughs> I love that. All right, so here's our first case. So this comes from Dr. Habishian. I'm not sure that I'm able to pronounce the first name. Kayan Habishian. And uh, this is obviously a, a young kid, um, has some lesions. Well, I'll, I'll let you describe or I'll let you pimp the residence. Your choice. All right. So I think this is a pretty classic presentation for this condition. So I would describe these as flat-topped pink-purple papules over the knuckles of the left, left hand. If you guys want to put in the chat what you think is going on, I suspect you'll be correct. But this isn't the only picture we have. Yeah, so we have three pictures. Got one on the foot, some lesions Similar here. Similar findings there. Mm -hmm. Yep, people mm -hmm. are already weighing in dermatomyositis. We have two votes for DM. Well, maybe this next picture will change your mind. Oop. 
but it shouldn't because it also looks like dermatomyositis. <laughs> so uh, I have a question. <clears throat> so my, I have four kids. Mm -hmm. Their knees always look like this. Mm -hmm. Should I be I worried about dermatomyositis? <laughs> should I biopsy them? Or should I, I just run them under the sink? I mean, you know, run them over the sink, buy them some really fetching knee pads, something to protect from that frictional dermatosis that's probably just normal in childhood for a lot of cases. I think the most telling clinical photos here are the one you just showed. Um, and then I believe there's another one that follows it. The knees by themselves, though, I wouldn't hang the diagnosis on just the knees. So the, the knees are the, I think, less um, classical part of the physical presentation, but also good to think about. Now, is there anything about these that, that, you know, if you just had the knees, you'd be like, you know, maybe the telangiectasias, maybe the degree of scale, maybe, um, you know, the, the surrounding skin uh, other than this, that, that kind of clues you into, you know, maybe that's bilateral, that, that uh, something systemic is going on. There's a very faint violet color to the background. Is that what you're going to say, Luke? Yeah. No, I was going to say, just looking at this, I don't think they look like abnormal knees. You'd need context. You need to be able to look closely and do the full physical exam. I think that, and I may be confabulating it, but I think that compared to what I'm used to seeing with like frictional keratosis of the knees, which fun fact there, sometimes you have something there called a prayer callus um, because they would get them in like nunneries, like people who would pray on the knees a lot would get those. So that's one of the names for them. But they also have other names and you see them all the time in people who do construction work and people who do activities. But usually it's more just of a hyperkeratosis without any inflammation. Mm -hmm. And these do look like they have inflammation behind the hyperkeratosis and color change. Mm. So I think that that would maybe be a distinguishing factor between that and the normal, like little kid running around on their knees, knees that you would normally see. Okay. Lack of good tips. So well, and I would go. just go ahead and start all your kids on hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> <laughs> Not ivermectin. They can't get it anymore. It's so good at treating COVID. Can you guys leave our drugs alone? Because that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, so here's the slide. This is a digital slide. And the way that, and maybe we can take turns or, or um, maybe, maybe we can have you talk about your approach, uh, Michelle. But, but I, I can go first and kind of um, start things off. So as I always say, when I look at this slide, the first thing that I do is I, I take a stab at where it was from and how old the patient is. And um, the collagen here looks very springy and the, the fat here looks uh, very kind of lobular also. So to me, this is a very young child already. And, and secondly, and, and this is, you know, obviously um, dependent on, uh, uh, on the kid too, but uh, secondly, I look at the periphery and I like to see if I can tell where this is from. So this has um, hyperkeratosis, has lamina lucida, um, has a pretty prominent granular layer, has a lot of ecrine ducts. So to me, this is acral. So acral things in a kid, uh, you know, my differential diagnosis is already kind of dialing down. And then the money is here in the papillary dermis and at the junction. So uh, I'm going to go to higher power right here, and it's a little bit thinned here, and I can see a little bit of va basilar vacualization, and I can confirm that there's some interface damage here because we have 
uh, pigment incontinence. And then I look at the, infl the inflammation and what kind of cells um, populate it. So to me, these are mainly lymphocytes. So uh, this basically is, is confirmatory of some sort of connective tissue disease. And in this context, as you guys noted, uh, dermatomyositis. And then fun, we can look for um, connective tissue mucin, uh, but uh, I can't say that I see anything here. So I'd love to hear how you approach these, Michelle. I like that you have that algorithm, and I think that's such an important thing to have, because if you just haphazardly look at the slide, you can have distracting injuries that take your attention away from the important diagnostic element. Um, you can have something that's a non-relevant, like incidental finding that catches your attention. So I like to teach reading derm path slides like we teach reading x-rays, right? So you have an algorithm that you follow each time so that you can make sure that you're addressing the entirety of the specimen and not missing anything important. I think that thinking about where the tumor comes from, or not the tumor, where the biopsy comes from, and maybe the context, like the age of the patient, is a really good idea too. Like if we see a specimen and we see a lot of ciliary elastosis, we see a lot of reactive keratinocyte TPR, our brain's gonna go to a different place than when we see this beautiful hot pink normal collagen that is the collagen of use that makes me happy. I always like to ask other dermatopathologists, does, does like ciliary elastosis under the microscope make you kind of sad, just like a little bit? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. A lot, absolutely. you're like, oh. Well. Uh, you, you know, I had a fellow with me, his name is Saurav Ray, and he used to say, every time we saw something with a lot of solar elastosis, uh, he'd say, if we could only harness the power of solar elastosis, <laughs> or maybe it was actinic keratosis, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, he got a thrill it's, out of it. It's, it's really impressive. Sometimes you look at the dermis and it looks like, like soup. It's very sad when that happens. But, so but after you kind of get that general gestalt of, you know, maybe what's the age, maybe what's the location, I think those are great things to think about. Then I'd start at the top and work my way down. So I look at the stratum corneum, see if it's normal or not, which gives you some indicator as to chronicity. You look at the epidermis and you look for inflammatory patterns to see if you have spongiotic inflammation, if you have interface inflammation, and then you proceed to examine the dermis and the perivascular spaces, make sure then to examine the subcutis and anything perineural. And I think that if you do a kind of progression through a slide like that, you won't miss your important clues or be distracted by an incidental finding. So I definitely agree an algorithm is so important. And in this specimen, looking at it, you know, right off the bat, you can see that there's some chronicity to it. There's a lot of hyperkeratosis. You can appreciate that there's some reactive epidermal changes. And then when you get up closer, you can appreciate the vacuolar alteration at the basement membrane and the strong perivascular inflammation. Now, sometimes learners get confused because we teach dermatomyositis itself as kind of subtle, right? So like dermatomyositis, let's say you biopsied like the shawl sign of a patient that had dermatomyositis. The findings there would be really minimal for most patients. They'd have some mild vacuolar interface, maybe very scant perivascular and a lot of mucin. We have to remember that Gotrin's type papules and that kind of sign um, on the April skin and the surfaces is where dermatomyositis kind of shows off. And so you get the kind of more impressive findings in that area. Um, so I think that that's a fine point that sometimes confuses people and thinking of it that way has helped me kind of explain it in the past. Yeah, and I always tell uh, the residents <clears throat> in anything that's inflammatory, you got to remember that there's a spectrum of changes, uh, especially from early to late. And everybody's always looking for the basement membrane changes. Maybe we have some here, but that uh, that's that's the one thing that I almost uh, never see unless it's a super, super late lesion. I totally agree with that. It's nice to see it when you have it. But yeah, yeah. It's kind of cool. I think of it like a car that's been out in a hailstorm. We get a lot of hail. That's one of the things we sometimes get. But like when you get a car that's been out in the hailstorm, if you think about the hood of the car and how it can get beaten up by the hail, 
And then if you tried to look at that like straight on edge after the hailstorm, it would look kind of fluffy and thickened, even though the individual membrane itself is very similar thickness. It's just damaged from the inflammation. So, uh, Colleen, you got any pimp questions for the residents? Um, more, I was just going to ask kind of from a trainee perspective, Dr. Johnson, how um, do you manage DM um, like juvenile dermatomyositis and kind of are you worried about anything um, that we're not thinking about in typical adult patients with dermatomyositis? I guess the malignancy risk isn't there in children correct? Well, yeah, obviously we do this in combination with our rheumatology colleagues, though interestingly they have protocols for telling how active somebody's dermatomyositis is. And in kids, the skin plays a bigger role in that algorithm than it does in adults. So there's a bit of an extra impetus for us to try to treat their skin disease. Unfortunately, as we know, the skin is hard to treat in dermatomyositis. So the treatments are similar as to the treatments we use in adults, topical steroids and sun protection and hydroxychloroquine and, you know, systemic immunosuppressants and things like that. All right, let's move on to the next case. Awesome. We warmed up with um, our first case. We took a little long, so we're definitely going to have to pick it up here. All right, so this is our second case here, and I'll just uh, hand it off right, o right over to Luke. To me, my second case looks a lot like my face. Is anybody else just seeing my face? Are you seeing your face? There you second go. Case or second face. <laughs> All right. So, um, residents, what color is this? Yellow. Yellow. Yellow, orange. There's not a lot of stuff in the skin that's yellow. So, especially if this is a child, you probably think it is. <laughs> it made me want to do my Adele joke, which is yellow. It's pink, because <laughs> it's both. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> you still got it, Michelle. <laughs> Flavoflavonoid making an appearance. All right. Uh, so this is pretty good for a juvenile xanthogranuloma. Uh, the natural history of these is that they spontaneously involute over the course of years. And I feel like they look fairly distinct clinically, so I usually don't biopsy them. The reason you might is if they're they're in a cosmetically sensitive area or if they're just annoying or something you could remove them with the caveat to the parents of course that they'll probably go away eventually on their own if there are a lot of them or if they are close to the eye then people can potentially get them intraocularly and then if they do have one intraocularly they can bleed into the anterior chamber which is something called a hyphema which can lead to permanent blindness so those are like referring people to optho if they have lots of JXGs, like more than three, or if they have them close to the eyes, really the only management I do besides reassurance for these, assuming PATH is confirmatory in this case. Yeah, so of course a biopsy was done, and here's a shave biopsy of a rather large, you know, you can kind of get a, an idea of the size of a biopsy, you know, you, even if you don't know what magnification you're on, uh, by how big the epidermis is. And, and obviously this is thin, but it's also really broad. So this is a large nodule. And it's obviously got some uh, hyperkeratosis, um, but uh, a dermis that's completely filled with uh, cells. And and one, one clue when you see a tumor, you know, in the dermis, um, is what color it is. And so this one is not as blue as 
a melanoma or something that's very dense that has a lot of nuclei. So this has a lot of cytoplasm, and it's kind of a blue cytoplasm. So um, there aren't that many things in this differential diagnosis either. And then since they all look the same, no matter where you go on higher power, it's going to look, uh, the cells are all going to be the same types of cells. Well, we do have some clear areas and some smaller blue areas here too. So we'll go on higher power and kind of screw, uh, scoot around, not screw around, scoot around. Um, some <laughs> of them are epithelial. <laughs> You know, that's technically kind of like that. So you could, you could say that. <laughs> so, uh, um, well, uh, I'll hand it off to you here, Michelle. So on a higher power, I'll scoot yeah, around. So, thank you for doing that. I appreciate that. Um, I, I think you described it really beautifully talking about the color. And I think that color can be really informative for dermatopathology. So what we're seeing here is that there's a lot of cytoplasm, but it's not terribly pink. Um, there's some, you know, pink background to it, but it's a little bit more amphophilic almost. And then you are seeing kind of back-to-back -back sort of fluffy histiocytes. Um, there's also some little areas where you've got some sclerosis and you've got it sort of attenuated epidermis sort of stretched over the top. But the beautiful part of this case is one of my favorite things in dermatopathology, which is the Teuton giant cell. And when I was very first learning this as a brand new baby derm resident, I had a hard time getting Teuton to stick in my face because the Teutonic warriors are something that like is important in history and whatever. And I was like, how do I connect this? But um, then I started thinking about like, well, it sounds like Teuton. I was like Tannenbaum and that's like a Christmas tree. And these remind me of a Christmas tree with snow on it. So like that helped me remember it. And of course I don't have to use those tricks now, but you know, if you're having trouble, think of it like <laughs> a Christmas tree with snow on it. And you'd be like, oh, Tannenbaum, oh, Teuton giant cells, you are a JXG. So I think that's one of the most pretty things that you see. Now it is important to point out those are not present in all JXGs. So early JXGs often lack well-developed Teuton giant cells, but they'll have all of the other elements. So a mixed inflammatory infiltrate, you'll see foamy histiocytes, usually that good silhouette where you have the attenuated epidermis over a nodular proliferation, maybe some of the little bit of sclerosis. So do you have a trick for early JXGs? Do I? Yeah. Uh, I don't have any tricks. Yeah, my, my only thing is like looking at the shape and the color and seeing what I should expect. Like I already look at it going, that looks like it's going to be a JXG. And if you're just missing the Teuton giant cells, you just confirm it's not anything else in the differential. Yeah, so uh, I like to also order a factor 13A on um, not every one of these, uh, but you know any, anything that doesn't have all the classic features um, just to make sure it falls into the xanthogranuloma family. Um, but that's about it. And one other point I always make with these things is in a child, completely harmless, probably will go, on away, go away on its own unless they're severe and multiple. In an adult, you need to go looking for lymphoverticular disease. So an adult with new onset XGs, we probably don't call them juvenile at that stage, but an adult with a xanthogranuloma that came, comes out of nowhere might have a higher risk for having a leukemia or lymphoma. I've had a couple of patients that were adults that had XGs arise, and then they got diagnosed one with adult Langerhans cell histiocytosis, another one with CLL, and another one with CML. All right. Anything uh, from the, the trainee side, Colleen? Um, I think just the triple association of JXG, kind of Dr. Tarbox was already touching on it, but JXG um nf and what makes up you can type in the chat what makes up the rest of that triple association that you need to worry about perfect jmml all right we'll move to the next case K 
case three. Okay, I think we have two patients here. Not in this picture, but so we have a lower limb of a newborn. So take it away, Luke. So especially if this is like in the newborn nursery or something, this is something you get consulted on patient with vesicles, we're worried about herpes, that kind of thing. And you come and you can kind of see these erythematous patches and vesicles and papules. They kind of track along maybe Blaschko's lines if you squint. We've got one or two more pictures here as well. It's a baby girl in all likelihood. So that's a good pimping question for the chat. So you keep going, but people in the chat, why is it likely to be a girl? One more picture here. So this is a different patient, I think, with mm -hmm. a little bit of a different presentation. But mm -hmm. these vesicles, sometimes they look like pustules, kind of track along the extremities and the trunk in these linear and world patterns. And a biopsy can really clinch the diagnosis, though, of course, we should be thinking of it. You can write down what you think is going on here in the chat, guys. Yeah, so we had a vote for IP already. And then to answer the question about why it's more common in females, we have X-linked dominant and fatal in males. There are rare case reports of males with this that had germline mosaicism that survived. Mm -hmm. Yes, or an XXY um, karyotype. And what else does this usually come in uh, with a differential as for you guys? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the, the one people that are most afraid of is some kind of infection in the neonatal period, like disseminated herpes or zoster, um, or potentially like severe, like impetigo, um, because of the postular nature. I think that's usually the first concern. Mm -hmm. Torch infection. But you know, everybody is justifiably worried about herpes. So they often will already be doing herpes stuff, herpes treatment and so on by the time you arrive, which I think is reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, herpes can look like a lot of different things and the treatment's pretty safe, but the biopsy can really help us clinch the diagnosis and be able to withdraw those things. Okay, speaking of the biopsy, here it is. So we actually have two slides for you. So, um, these are interesting because, so he, here's a punch biopsy. And again, uh, you can notice kind of the, the smaller fat and the, the springy collagen, nice red color. Uh, and then the money is up here. And so we have uh, hyperkeratosis and we have these eosinophilic microabscesses, lots and lots of eosinophils everywhere. So kind of like a sponge derm on steroids. So, or off steroids because steroids would be breeding sponge germ. <laughs> yeah. it, it is such a pretty slide. Yeah, so anything else you want to glean from this slide, Michelle? Oh, for sure. So um, the things that I admire very much about this, um, first of all, you have this really nice um, hyperkeratotic element that's not always there early on, um, but you can appreciate that you have that part of it overlying that follicular orifice. And you saw that in some of the pictures that some of the lesions were keratotic. Um, you also see that there's this really impressive um, 
invasion of the epidermis by eosinophils. And here they're even making a frank pustule, which you sometimes will see in this condition, along with dyskeratosis. So we have that eosinophilic infiltration of the epidermis and dyskeratotic keratinocytes within the epidermis. You see those two things together over, over the top of normal looking collagen, like healthy young collagen, IP is a pretty darn good bet. This degree of eosinophilic spongiosis is too severe for most things that you would even think about with eosinophilic sponge. So with eosinophilic sponge, you'd also think of things like, you know, a patient might have bulbous pemphigoid and it might be an urticarial lesion of that condition. That wouldn't necessarily have as much dyskeratosis. And it usually doesn't have this level of impressive invasion by the eosinophils into the epidermis. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a beautiful slide. Yeah. We have a, uh, go ahead. Sorry. We have a question in the chat um, regarding, could you consider LCH based on the path differential? Um, Langerhans cell histiocytosis, you know, eosinophils like to hang out with Langerhans cells, but the predominating cell in this is definitely the eosinophils. There's not really good mononuclear cell infiltrate. It definitely can have some crossover, I think, in terms of the appearance of acute lesions and, you know, the collections of the cells in the epidermis, but it's just such a predominance of eosinophils for me. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. There's uh, there's no longer Han cells here um, to speak of, and even if they were, they're they're probably dendritic and not epithelioid. So um, usually you can see those from low power. Also, these, like you said, the striking thing is the eosinophils. Um, and I also want to add that you know in a in a severe sponge derm in a young patient there's not that many things in the differential uh, especially this young and uh another clue that this is a very young patient is you know not not a whole lot of sebaceous glands here and these really small kind of vellus hair t hairs too so the context really helps you even if you didn't have any clinical information i think this would still be at the top of your differential mm -hmm, definitely so folks we have... in the chat what is the most important subspecialty to refer these patients to early the most important subspecialty to refer IP patients to early. Though the good news is that most patients do fine. Uh, it stands for incontinentia pigmenti, of course, and Dr. Alfie Kroll, my senior mentor and fellowship, sometimes called it inconsequentia pigmenti. <laughs> and uh, people and parents of children who have it bad might be offended by that, I suppose. But um, I try to be reassuring because sometimes parents have been really scared by other providers. So we and, have a vote. We have an echo. I used to have a Toyota echo, but I sold it in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a vote for Optho, Dentistry, and Neuro. Optho is the answer. So they need pretty frequent Optho follow-up, and Optho, of course, knows the protocol. Neuro, I usually don't send them to unless they develop signs or symptoms, because a lot of kids with IP don't actually end up having neurologic issues. And then dentistry is important, but they're not going to develop teeth until they're about a year old. So that's when you want them to go to dentistry. So here's uh, another biopsy from a different patient. And uh, as I mentioned before, inflammatory things have a course, a time course. And, and in fact, uh, Bernie Ackerman had a book called The Lives of Lesions. And this is a later lesion. And this is a really pretty finding that you don't always see, rarely see actually. So. Uh, the scaly lesions can have um, dyskeratosis, but they can also have kind of these whorly things too here. So later lesions don't look the same as early lesions. 
Okay. Yeah, you don't you don't quite get that impressive preponderance of intraepidermal eosinophils mm -hmm. in the more mature lesions, but you still usually have some along with dyskeratosis, so you're still usually able to make the diagnosis really well. The past one was so infiltrated by the eosinophils that had an eosinophilic pustule, which that's a pretty unusual thing too. You can see eosinophilic pustules in certain things, including like pemphigus vegetans, but it's not super common. Okay, moving along to the next case. Anything else, Colleen? Um, I guess what are the, so when this later stage would be more like Verrucus II? Um, kind of in between, I would say, in yeah. between. Okay. Okay. So we only have one picture here, and uh, I think this is your picture, right, Colleen? Yes, this was that. a case from Morgantown. So this is a brand new baby, and uh, we'll say that they are a healthy term baby. And if you were to palpate this, I think you would feel some induration on that discolored patch there. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think they also had a history of potentially hypothermic, like hypothermic cooling. So we already have a vote for subcutaneous fat necrosis of the newborn. Well, we do have a biopsy, so mm -hmm. uh, that should give us the answer if it's subcutaneous <laughs> fat necrosis of the newborn. Yeah, so maybe instead of monopolizing the initial read, um, maybe Michelle can take, take the oh, initial sure. shot. So just like you were talking about, when you first kind of look over, I like to do that kind of bird's eye view and when I'm doing my bird's eye view, I'm doing a couple of things. Actually, the way I start looking at a slide is I actually pick it up and look at how many pieces I'm supposed to be looking at, count and make sure I'm going to see all of those. Then I look through the scanning optic and I try to see where do I think the action is in the specimen? Like, where is the diagnosis going to sit? Now, I still start at the top and work my way down so I don't miss anything. But you can kind of tell with this specimen that the exciting part is deeper in the specimen. So I would proceed through the exam of the normal stratum corneum and the nice, happy looking at epidermis really beautiful collagen in the dermis, a little hypercellular, but you kind of see that in young patients. So I might think that this is probably a younger patient like a baby, but the real beauty of the specimen is when you get into the dermis. And what you see there is sort of a mixed inflammatory infiltrate invading part of the lobule of fat. And you can see that there's some, some adipocytes that don't look so healthy there that have some clefts in them that are somewhat radially oriented. You also see some areas where there's quite a lot of inflammatory cells some of the little rays are within what look more like histiocytes and some of them are within adipocytes and there's a mixed inflammatory infiltrate that mixed inflammatory infiltrate does help you distinguish this condition from one of its histologic mimickers um, so there's inflammation here this baby lived long enough for the inflammation to happen and show up in the biopsy if you happen to be unfortunate enough to be part of the care of a baby suffering from sclerema neonatorum, which is one of the other conditions we consider in this differential, usually much sicker babies who are preemies, they often don't live long enough for the inflammation to even become a part of the presentation of the pathology. So the presence of the inflammation kind of points more towards subcutaneous fat necrosis of the newborn. What is the other histologic mimic of subcutaneous fat necrosis of the newborn can happen in any age? you guys like in the chat, you can put that in. And then I also have a good pimping question, which is what is the metabolic anomaly that can follow subcutaneous fat necrosis of the newborn? So Excellent. You can put those two things in the chat. So which metabolic abnormality can they get? And what is the histologic mimic of subcutaneous fat necrosis of the newborn? Yeah, so you're getting answers for um, post-steroid paniculitis 
for mm -hmm. the mimic and then lots of hypercalcemias. Yay! Good job. Which is relevant from a management standpoint. So there are some guidelines that say you should not supplement these babies with vitamin D drops like you do with most babies. Um, I've had patients who have just like a little tiny piece of subcutaneous fat necrosis of the newborn, and it's hard to imagine that that's going to cause enough trouble to actually withhold their vitamin D. So I just sort of tell the pediatrician this information and kind of let them decide what to do about the vitamin D. All right. Anything else, Colleen? <clears throat> mm, no, I think we're good. Okay. Next we'll case. Move to the next case. So this comes from Dr. Kerkorian at MedStar. <clears throat> Beautiful case. Let's start off with the first picture. We have three pictures here. Well, this is a little kid. This is uh, fairly dramatic. You've got this fungating pink tumor. I would call it exophytic. If I was thinking about fruit, I might say it looks a little bit like a raspberry. It's got hypopigmentation extending onto the neck with some hyperpigmentation admixed. There's, it's tough to say exactly what's going on up there with, I assume that's the ear. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of a soft exophytic papillonodule there too. And then beautiful blashcolinear hypopigmentation along with this sort of speckled appearance along the lateral edges. Clearly this is a different patient from this one. A little older. Yeah. <laughs> and then more of these raspberry looking papillomas, if you will, with again this pigmentation disorder. Hypo and or hyperpigmentation and mixed together. Yeah, so when I first saw this picture, I was like, maybe that's um, sub-Q or fat herniation, but I think uh, actually it's probably the papillomas mm -hmm. kind of extending down here. Okay. If I uh, did not already know the answer to this, I'm not sure I would get it just from looking at this. I've never seen one of these patients in real life. But in the chat, you guys can write down a pediatric dermatologist's favorite pimp question answer. What's the gene mutation? <laughs> A gene mutation for this disease. And you can write down a few other clinical features you can see in them too if you feel like it. Yeah, a multitude great. of clinical features. So we have the raspberry papillomas of Golds and then the gene PORCM, which I think stands for um, porcupine gene. Hmm. I didn't actually know that's what it's for. All right, so uh, residents, which one of the clinical findings do we have here? So we have a biopsy here, a shave biopsy, multiple fragments. Yeah, this is the papilloma. So uh, from a path perspective, there's not a whole lot to say for this. You know, it could be a wart, uh, could be something any number of things that's papillomatous. If it's on the oral cavity, you might see some clear cells, which we don't hear, uh, but that would be a verruciform xanthoma. But, uh, um, you know, overall, a very interesting case. Um, 
You can also get pyogenic granulomas here. You can get alopecia. You can get nail findings. Uh, you know, many, many findings. Lots to pimp about here, right? Oh. The other name for GOLTS is focal dermohypoplasia. So you could probably see those sorts of findings on PATH yep. as well. Yep. And then I always remember they can get the lobster claw deformities. And when I was looking over this case, I actually thought it would be an amazing pimping case because you've got these strawberry papillomas, their histopathology, and somewhat their clinical is somewhat reminiscent of a verruciform xanthoma. And there's another genodermatosis that can create world pigmentation or um, maybe um, blashcoid pigmentation that you can appreciate a blashcoid texture change that's associated with a verruciform xanthoma. So that's another good pimping question is which of the genodermatoses that can have blashcolinear findings is associated with a verruciform xanthoma which I think would be really hard, like that would be a good way to write a really difficult question, right? Because you have two entities that have that black linear pigment change that also have papillomas that even at low power on the microscope resemble each other. Yep, we got answers for child syndrome. Yay! And then do you guys have the gene for that? Just a Google search away. <laughs> <laughs> I always remembered it with this mnemonic, which is like, do not send your child by DHS or DHL, like the people who um, were trying to compete with uh, FedEx for a while. So like an FDHL. And is yeah. this patient like uh, most likely a female or a male? Tell us in the chat, F or M? Nobody knows. So female, this is uh, X-linked dominant, right? Am I remember? Yeah, X-linked dominant. Yeah, I think so. I think child is as well. Okay. So we'll move on to the next case here. This is a really cool case too. So we have a, a little bit of an older boy who apparently never heeded his mother's... Um, suggestions to wash his neck or around his ears right <laughs> so he's pretty xerotic and he has these erosions and shallow ulcers in the neck flexure as well as some hyperpigmentation there and we have another picture and then this looks like his abdomen and waistline he's again got this flaky hyperpigmented thin scale overlying pretty raw looking erythema and they kind of alternate so yes. this one would be tough without some context and uh, Colleen I think you had some context for this patient yeah so um, this child had autism and had a very limited diet um, and so some people in the chat have already guessed nutritional deficiency pellagra from Texas Tech I might add <laughs> Michelle promised she was not feeding them answers. I'm not. I promise I'm not. They can vouch for me. I'm being really good. <laughs> They're really smart, though, so it's just—it's not a surprise to me that they are on the right track. That's awesome. Yeah. So, do you know about how long it took for this presentation to develop, Colleen? I don't. I forget some of the details surrounding the case. The path is such a beautiful illustration too of a couple of things like how fast this can happen 
these kind of crises of loss of the epidermal integrity and stuff can happen relatively quickly with these um, deficiency states. So like on the, on the pathology, it's really orthokeratotic, but then the epidermis becomes very pale and almost has like balloony degeneration. And then you can kind of tell it's not an inflammatory process because the dermis is actually relatively quiet. It's a little, get, it's getting irritated with the epidermis, but the problem is, you know, coming from a different source. This isn't caused by the inflammation. Yeah, so this one's almost textbook, uh, almost too good to be true, this one. Right. <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, you only get this kind of pale look to it. You know, you don't have the necrosis to it. And sometimes most of the epidermis is normal, except for the edge, you know, is a little bit paler. And then uh, later lesions, uh, you know, can look like psoriasis. So, but uh, this is a, such a good case. So good. As Michael used to say, oh, this is so good. So good. <laughs> yeah, it's an awesome example. So if this is pellagra, that's a deficiency of what? Mm -hmm. Which vitamin? B3, niacin. Yep, niacin. Good job, guys. So which ones of the other nutritional deficiencies? Uh, the, the, uh, this is a question for Luke. Um, you know, the, the, there's a whole bunch, but uh, which ones happen most often in kids? Is it this one? Pellagra? I don't know the answer. We live in resource-rich America where I don't really see a lot of this. But I would guess Quashiorcor and Merasmus are pretty mm -hmm. common in resource-poor places of the world and kids. And if you restricted it to like patients in the kind of newborn to you know infant age, you might think about like enterodermatitis and neuropathica or acrodermatitis and neuropathica um, might be more prominent in that age group. But yeah, I think all of those. Yeah, and they all looked similar histologically. Mm -hmm. All right, so we'll remember any... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, are there any drugs that can make pellagra happen faster or that can predispose patients to pellagra? There's a couple we sometimes, well, we don't usually get it, other people often do. I always remember like INH for some reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good job. They got that in the chat. Yay! <laughs> All right, here's the next case. So this is a pretty straightforward one, but there's a lot of discussion to be had here. Mm-hmm. Management. <laughs> so this is a pink-brown papule or possibly plaque on the skin. Same lesion. Uh, it looks just... like an extremity. Uh-huh. Same looks, a little pinker this time. Mm -hmm. And then a pretty classic look on path. <laughs> so again, young skin, uh, we have a very well circumscribed lesion, a very symmetrical lesion, uh, largely junctional. Um, don't let this stuff up here scare you, this impera, and a lot of times the nests kind of pop right out of the epidermis too, but they're all still fairly nested, uh, like a bunch of bananas. They're hanging off of the uh, junction a little bit, uh, and they're spindled and epithelioid. So this is a classic first year Spitz nevus, yeah. So, um, you know, this is a topic nobody ever gets tired of talking about is the atypical Spitz tumor. So <laughs> I would love to hear, you know, I've been at Pittsburgh my whole career and mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, once a year, uh, I get out and get to listen to people talk about this sort of thing. Um, you know, more and more, we're doing a lot of molecular tests on this. And sometimes I wonder if we're doing too many, you know, we, if, if it looks funny at all, you know, if it has a, a, a large dermal component, if it has, you know, uh, one look in one area and one look in another area, um, you know, we don't hesitate anymore to get, get fish studies. And um, on top of all that, you know, we have these new NGS panels where we can look for um, NTRK and ALK and, you know, many other things. And, and I feel like we're kind of rediscovering this lesion in this age of NGS. But I also, at the same time, feel like maybe we're doing a little too much because we're not really sure what to do with all these lesions. So I'd love to know, um, you know, when you make and uh, how you work up an atypical Spitz tumor and uh, what you guys do with them afterwards. I totally agree. This is such a hard area of dermatopathology, especially because most of the patients you're dealing with are going to be children or young patients. Um, and there's definitely, there's Spitz nevi that you can look at and you feel happy in your heart. Oh, what a cute Spitz nevi. That's adorable. Nevis, that's adorable. And you sign it out and you let the patient go along with their life. But then there are ones that look a little unusual. And what we're learning as we're doing more molecular studies is that tumors that look weird under the microscope often have genetic changes that explain why they have that phenotype. And that makes sense when you think about it, that the genetics are driving the actual presentation of the condition. Um, what we do with that information is definitely in development. So my personal approach, if it's a young patient, it's a relatively typical looking spits. We, you know, clinically also might just observe it. There are specific dermoscopic signs that you look for in Spitz nevi. You can look for their typical regularly distributed dotted vasculature. They're allowed to have kind of a negative network because of the epidermal hyperplasia that can happen as a part of the neoplasm, which is actually a reassuring sign. When you get a thick epidermis with a compound or junctional Spitz nevus, that's normal. I like to say that the epidermis and the nevus, uh, the, the cells of the Spitz nevus like to play with each other a little bit. So you get a little bit of a thickened epidermis in that setting. Hmm. And you're right that once it, it becomes more atypical, maybe you have some features of unusual dermal population, you have some mitotic figures, then you have to think about what am I going to do for this? So if there's atypical features of it, but it doesn't achieve the level of atypia you'd be concerned of for melanoma, I think that studying it further to know if there's a greater risk is reasonable. In general, we tend to conservatively re-excise them if they're present, if they're an atypical Spitz tumor, if it's feasible for the person at that age without significant morbidity. Otherwise, sometimes we observe them depending on how well the biopsy removed the lesion or other features of the patient if they have a high-risk family situation or something like that. But I think this is a state of knowledge that's really in flux. And even in the original paper describing the Spitz nevus, some of those patients did actually have outcomes that would indicate that some of the things even in that paper that were called Spitz nevi were either atypical Spitzoid tumors or Spitzoid melanomas. So it's a difficult diagnosis to make. It's very nuanced. And I think that as we learn more about why the genetics make the, the cells behave the way that they do, we'll understand better how to use that information. So what's kind of your go-to language in your comments? Uh, yes. I'll tell you exactly what I say. <laughs> the management of Spitzoid neoplasms is controversial. However, and then I give kind of instructions as to what I recommend. So if it's feasible to re-excise re it um, conservatively, but completely, I do favor that approach for a couple of reasons. One reason is that you know that it's gone. The other reason is that if you leave it there, it grows back through a scar. It's going to look horrible grown back through a scar. It may still have unusual atypia grown back through a scar. It's much more likely if it's ever biopsied again to be called a melanoma. 
And so you're not doing the patient necessarily a favor by not putting them through the conservative excision because down the line, they might end up having to have a big excision and maybe even a sentinel for something that without the context of the prior biopsy gets interpreted as Spitzner's melanoma. And we know Spitznevi go to lymph nodes, like mm. benign Spitznevi go to lymph nodes. So you can open a Pandora's box if you lymph node biopsy somebody who has a Spitznevis and then there's, you know, a read that suggests it's in the, the lymph nodes. So it's a hard, it's a hard thing to manage. How about at Utah? Something similar? Well, I rely on our dermatopathologists for a lot of this Spitzneva stuff. The more I learned about Spitznevi and fellowship, though, the more I felt like I should think about them like I just think about Nevi. So especially if they're in a kid under 12 and I biopsy it and it says Spitznevis, then it's just like if I biopsied something and it said Nevis, so I don't worry about it. If it says it's like mildly atypical, then I usually still don't worry about it. Like I don't worry about a mildly atypical melanocytic nevus. If it's moderate or severe, then I usually will re-excise it because that's what I would do in a non-spitz nevus that came back that way. And at what point would you do a node or send them for a node? I would probably have to be in conversation with the dermatopathologist and decide how worried they were. And I think depth is important too. Like. The hard thing with Spitznevi, though, is if they have a dermal component, because the epidermis is so thick, they get deep pretty fast because the epidermis is already so thick and you measure from the granular cell layer. So you may be in that Spitznode, that lymph node territory relatively quickly, even with some sort of superficial reticular dermal invasion. So I think you have to put it all together as a like whole picture who the patient is, what their risk is at baseline, what are the characteristics of the tumor, and also what are the characteristics of the patient. Can they tolerate a re-excision? Are they going to have to go under general anesthesia to have it done? Do they have medical conditions that makes that more dangerous than observing the lesion? So it's a hard decision to make and has to be made with a, the clinician and the pathologist together, I think. And how often do you use fish? Fish is mostly for things that we just can't classify based off of immunostains and regular routine histology sections. So I would say of the spitzoid tumors that we deal with, um, I would say probably 10 to 20% of all the spitzoid things are atypical enough to consider that kind of mm. workup. Okay. But we don't biopsy a ton of them because to biopsy nevus in a child, I have to be kind of provoked because it's a child. And so their things are gonna be developing and growing. Their melanocytes are gonna be a little bit bigger and juicier looking because they're young and they might have mitotic figures because they're growing. Yeah. So biopsying things in a child can potentially open up a Pandora's box that you didn't have to open. So. I have to be a little bit provoked in a kid. And I, I'm a big dermoscopy nerd, so I, of course, examine the lesions carefully and will monitor them for change, things like that. Well, I really appreciated hearing uh, your views on these. Thank you. So we will head to the next case. So this is a case. Uh, I did take out one picture because it wasn't classic. but uh, So we only have one clinical picture here. And... Uh, well, this is a toddler age child, looks like, with scattered, heme-crusted, mildly erythematous papules on the trunk. Tough to say what those are without more context, but let's get a biopsy. Maybe yeah, that'll be the well, answer. Yeah, well, instantly, <laughs> here's the biopsy, and you can see the scale crust here, a giant scale crust, and um, a very dense superficial dermal infiltrate here, which has uh, got some clear cells in it. So we have this uh, neutrophilic and hemorrhagic scale crust, some perikeratosis, kind of a thinned epidermis, 
the epidermis may or may not, yeah, it's definitely involved with some of these epithelioid cells here. So these epithelioid cells aren't arranged in any nest or in any particular pattern. They're just kind of, uh, I feel like Michelle would have a good analogy uh, here for, for some soldiers or something. Um, you know, I was actually thinking, it, it does, it looks like a civil war battle. There's just no organization at all. <laughs> No generals leading this charge whatsoever, and then they were down on the one side. Like totally Civil War veterans take offense. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a beautiful slide, and I liked how you brought up that clear space with the inflammatory infiltrate. I think you see that often with this condition, is that there's sort of space around the cells because there's so much spongiosis. Um, so when you look up closer, you also see that there's this background proliferation of these really nice looking mononuclear cells that have a lot of cytoplasm and they have nice little bean shaped nuclei, which is lovely um, for this diagnosis. So, and then there's a sprinkling of their friends, which are of course, they include the eosinophils on their friends list that obviously got into the party here. And we've got some lymphocytes, a little bit of hemorrhage. Um, so I think this is a beautiful case. Absolutely beautiful. Are the people getting it in the chat? Mm -hmm. Yes, we have several votes for LCH. Yay! <laughs> I love it. So the epidermotropism or the um, sort of pagetoid movement, I guess, of the Langerhans cells through the epidermis is sometimes so striking that it looks almost like um, potentially even like a little tumor nodule. They, lo they love to go into the epidermis because they belong there. So Langerhans cells are normal occupants of the uh, epidermis. And sometimes, you know, you get a stain or something that's like showing you, like what would stain a, like a Langerhans cell actually? This is a good question. So In what would be chat. a good yes. What stain? Yeah, we got a 207. Yep. Very good. And then what's one that stains other things too that might actually be confusing? S100. Mm -hmm. So if you see like a dendritic cell that's S100 positive, but it's above the basement membrane, and there's not melanoma in the rest of the background of the photo you're looking at, you should think about a Langerhans cell instead of a melanocyte. Awesome. Yeah, Beautiful case. Try to see if we can find one, but I don't think there is one here. And sometimes um, they'll attack the follicular epithelium too, but we don't have that as well. Yeah, so nice case. So in the interest of time, we'll keep moving on here. So the patient here. has some tan yeah. macules or papules. There's a few more there. Some on the back. And probably you would uh, try rubbing one to see what happened. Yeah, and uh, so clearly they're pre-potty trained in this photograph. And then <laughs> now they're a little bit older. This is the same patient. They yeah. are much more inflamed and numerous now. Okay, a little these girl are, now. These are fabulous cases. Yeah, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So here on lower power, you know, we have a, a really big punch biopsy. I can't even zoom out. That's when you know it's really <laughs> big. <laughs> um, and uh, the epidermis is fairly normal. And then you have this population of cells here. Uh, in the upper dermis, and then uh, the rest of the, the skin is fairly unremarkable. So the money is here, that's where we're going for the money. Money's right here. Maybe a little spongiosis over to the right here. And then these are all the same type of cell, and they're all um, 
a little bit granular. Mm-hmm. And everybody likes to use the term fried egg for this. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's a fried egg. <laughs> a sunny That's side up. Okay, so. Um, yeah, we, we got have some votes for mastocytosis. Yeah, great job, guys. Awesome. Sometimes the mast cells are so densely packed, they actually look like a nevus. And so you have to like really take a minute and look at the cells and see if you can tell that the cytoplasm, that granular cytoplasm of the mast cells, or if it's that amphophilic cytoplasm, that's a little more homogeneous for the melanocytes. Good news is that usually mastocytomas are rather inconsequential, even when people have, you know, a fair amount of them. If people have a whole bunch of them, like maybe over 20, I might ask them physical exam questions or review of systems questions. I'll probably do that anyway to see if they have just like too much histamine getting released into their systems. You can ask them about abdominal pain and diarrhea and wheezing and stuff like that. And you can check a tryptase level if you really feel inspired. If it's over 25, then you can start to be concerned that they really do have a large mast cell burden just squirting out a ton of histamine. And that's a stain that we can do too. We can do a tryptase stain or a C-kit or uh, any of the metachromatic stains that help highlight the granules, uh, like a Gamesa stain. So I wanted to ask you, I don't know exactly what happened in this patient, but why, why would you think that this has stuck around for so long and, and kind of progressed? So we used to think that mastocytomas would sort of slowly go away over time but there was a study a few years ago that said oftentimes they stick around but they rarely bother anybody so this particular case of them sort of getting worse over time was pretty unusual so this is a patient where i would be a little bit more concerned that there was maybe something systemic going on and they would need further workup yeah i wonder if she had anything okay anything else from your side the trainee side colleen um, if you were going to work someone up, what is a um, serum test that you do? What lab would you order in the chat? One other management thing, if I have a patient that has multiple mastocytomas or urticaria pigmentosa or TEMA, I do like to make sure that they at least have access to an EpiPen because they can be at greater risk for anaphylaxis, especially if they get stung by something in the hymenopter mm-hmm. family. And so just making them aware of that, I think, is appropriate. And then I also talk to them about anytime they need anything where they might need general anesthesia, they need to make sure that the person taking care of them understands that they have mastocytosis and that there are certain anesthetic agents that they shouldn't actually be exposed to. Mm-hmm. All right, moving um, on to the last. Is this the last case? Yep. Yeah, this is the last case. So we're doing good. We start a little late and we'll end a little bit late. Thank you guys for being so kind about that. Oh, no, no. So this is a child, probably school age, and with a large pink papillonodule on the chin. There's not a lot else going on on the skin. So this could be a lot of different things. Yeah, so um, I'll give you um a little bit more history on this patient it uh didn't grow anything out and uh went away on its own after months and months and months and uh it's not acne <laughs> no, the, not uh, people in the chat have a whack at it so people are guessing lymphoma versus pseudo lymphoma pseudo lymphoma those could look like this but that's not what this is 
got uh, it. Somebody got it. Somebody yeah. got it without the path. Right. See, who needs path? <laughs> we're, we're, we're disposable. So here's the Except biopsy. <laughs> so here's a biopsy, a nice deep punch biopsy. And then uh, we almost have a Gren zone here. And then we have this really dense mixed infiltrate. And then you can tell how friable the biopsy is because it's like just falling apart here, just falling apart. Uh, and then on higher power, uh, it's mixed lymphocytes, histiocytes, a bit granulomatous. Um, and I'll tell you, all the bug stains were negative. So this this is a, an area that's a little bit more granulomatous here. So you're saying it was aseptic? Aseptic, one might say. So this and is it a... was on the face. <laughs> and you said it was granulomatous. It was granulomatous. And who knows why it was yeah, there? Yeah, who knows? Nobody. Nobody knows. So uh, Dr. Crow got the diagnosis. This is an idiopathic, well, she said aseptic facial granuloma. This could also be termed an idiopathic facial aseptic uh, granuloma. Um, and uh, this is something that's, that, that was new to me over the, the course of my career. It's not something that I learned in residency, but uh, pretty classic history. You know, a bump that looks like really bad acne that doesn't go away for a little while and on, uh, never grows any organisms. I'm not sure if there's anything- I think anything... I learned about this in fellowship, so it is perhaps under-recognized, but I find it, I'm talking about it more and more lately. Mm -hmm. It's thought to be a variant of granulomatous rosacea. You can try to treat it with ILK. The average time it takes them to go away on their own is 11 months. In my experience, most people don't wanna wait that long. I've excised a couple of these. And there's, there's something kind of like it that happens on the scalp, the aseptic, um, sometimes alopecic nodules of the scalp um, that get mistaken for like pilar cysts and things like that. I think we discussed those in one of our dermis yeah. episodes. Yes, we did. It was a long time ago, though. Mm -hmm. Well, that's it. Uh, unless Colleen has anything else to, to pimp the residents on on this case. Nothing else. That's all I know. Yeah, so that was a good case to end up on kind of a rare bird, but once you see it, uh, you'll know it for the rest of your life. Um, I want to greatly thank Dr. Johnson and Dr. Tarbox again for uh, being guest hosts here and bringing along your residents. I hope you guys had fun. Really, I just want to make these things fun like you guys do on your uh, podcast. You know, just <laughs> people can suck in this information and have a good time, um, watch, wa wa uh, have dinner while, while they're watching the video or listening to the podcast. Um, and so, uh, hope to have you guys on again sometime. Thank you. It was so much fun. Those are great cases. Yes. And thanks to all of the residents from our institutions and elsewhere for hanging out with us this evening. Thank you guys for learning with us. Thank I you. love you guys. Thank um, you. So we do this every week. Um, not with such, uh, illustrious co-hosts, of course. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what, what is our topic next week? I'm not even sure. I take this week to week. I might not even know yeah, until, know <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we do this every week. Um, and uh, next week we'll have some sort of themed unknown. So just pop by, uh, we'll have another post up in another 10 cases. Yay, thank you guys so much. This was so much fun. Thank you, thank you. It was a lot of fun for us too. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye guys. That'll do it for this bonus episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear the rest of our episodes, bonus and otherwise, you can do so 
Anywhere you can find our archive, such as Apple Podcasts or our website, dermospherepodcast.com. Thanks, of course, to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. Thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. Thanks to Ryan Carlisle, medical student and member of Team Dermosphere, who keeps our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts moving along. Thanks to Dr. Ho for inviting us to come join him on Kiko. Michelle, you want to tell him about our other podcast? Absolutely. So we have another podcast called SkinCast. This is a public-facing podcast. It's shorter than Dermosphere, about 15 to 20 minutes, and it's aimed at lay people who want to learn how to take the very best care of the skin they're in. All right. Thanks for hanging out with us today, and we'll see you at our next regularly scheduled experience. Bye.